Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 1st of July, second half of the year. We actually have a full studio today. You're listening to Jess. Ivan. <laughs> and fourth member who fits into that rhythm pattern. <laughs> uh, it's nice to have the whole team back, actually. It is. Okay. Um, it's making me quite happy. Um, update, though. How, how have our weeks been? Mm, starting off with you, Rob. Where have you been? Mm. I've, have I've you been, been, been busy, busy doing some designing some schools. So that's been doing, Victoria is building so many schools at the moment because obviously the population is growing so much. So we've been doing some work there. But this past weekend, I've actually had a really nice opportunity to. I'm writing an article about a really cool organisation that uses Minecraft as a tool to help communities co-design public spaces. Um, yeah it's a great organization it's called block by block and they work generally in the global south in more informal sectors and so it's all about using this sort of gamified process to help really engage young people in designing public spaces in the city Um, and they also do work in refugee camps as well which for a lot of children there is actually kind of like a lifeline having this opportunity to design something in their living environment in a sort of space where they're trying to make sense of this Mm -hmm strange surreal environment that they're within and so they've been working across 35 different countries over the 10-year period that the organization's been around so it's been really interesting sort of speaking with some people from the organization and sort of researching into that and stitching that all together so i'll be i'll probably talk about it more in a future week once it's once it's published and or edited and everything but yeah that's been my my weekend and is that looking to be on like a like somewhere like the conversation or where are you writing this for so it's for a kind of architecture urbanism publication called mm-hmm. Assemble Papers, which do a lot of um, articles about how we like the culture of living and how we live in cities today. And mm. it's kind of a bit of a cross cross cut of different types of different disciplines. That's so exciting. My little brother spends all of his time on Minecraft and I definitely think the youth of today, they can use their talents on Minecraft to actually put into some good use. It's, it's incredible what you can do on that application and it can really actually um make real life projects on it it's amazing (laughs) i'm so glad you went that way because i'm literally planning to play minecraft after this (laughs) i've got a underground like glass basement i want to make under the ocean so i've I've got plans (laughs) it's it's amazing it let your creativity run wild on that game it's incredible it's like i've never actually played it because i'm too scared I'll get addicted because I know I love those world building games so mm-hmm. I've just I gotta say like I feel like it's because I'm never gonna own a house so I gotta like live, voyeuristically like live through <laughs> Minecraft um but I admit it's like it's very odd because it is you're right it is addictive in large amounts however it's also very meditative 
Like, cause you, you put, you set your mind to something and you're like, I'm going to build this, gather the resources. Oh, la la la. Like, it's just, uh, it's, it's so odd. Something about generations that like, you know, gen millennials down to gen Z's like there's some weird need for world building where it's just like, I need to make something pretty because my reality outside ain't pretty. Like, I don't know <laughs> something, what it is. something guess, aesthetically guess, pleasing that's incredibly sustainable. Yeah, that's what we want. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the theory is if you spend enough time on Minecraft, you'll just assume that that is reality. So <laughs> then you're literally living in, in your world that you want to Yeah. Better Absolutely. Like, and yeah, and you also like the, sorry to like drag this on, but like the game, <laughs> gamified process is so fascinating. Like I was listening to um someone talk about like the gamified process of like the Hong Kong protests uh, that we saw last year and how like a lot of um, protesters were creating these programs and these games that, that were really, you know, using a game structure, like online phone games to push messages and information surrounding the protest. So it's just really fascinating how we engage with these like bigger issues or stuff in a game setting. It's just such a massive issue topic. It's quite interesting because I've been reading how there's a group that's set up from what I understand, kind of like a library online and inside there are all these books of texts that are banned in certain countries. And so it's about trying to sort of produce a free media for people who are in, in sort of nations or countries where there's a censorship on certain books and so they're able to access and read them. So there, and you have to go into the Minecraft world and somehow within there you can read these texts. So there's some really yeah. interesting work about free access to, to knowledge and words, which is fascinating. Um, but with that, what do we have on the show today? <laughs> We've got a few. Um, <laughs> my interview this week is with Bronwyn Carlson. So it's in light of uh, the recent decision that the online gay dating app Grinder took to remove its ethnicity filter. So there used to be a filter on the app where you could filter profiles based on someone's identified or self-identified ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And so in light of the Black Lives Matter movement that's being taken down or about to be taken down. And so we were going to have a chat about... Um, the intersection, particularly with Indigenous men and queer culture and what that experience is like on the online dating scene and some of the precautions and sort of things that people have to do in order to navigate that quite challenging scenario. Mm. Mm. And it seems like we've got not necessarily a theme coming up, but my interview will be actually talking to the CEO of SANE Australia. SANE, of course, is the national mental health charity purpose towards all things related to mental health um and they'll be talking about a new online resource that they've created to actually um provide greater information and support to people who are carers of people with mental illness so people who are in the supportive networks and you you know the kind of the first first responders uh to people in crisis and stuff like that and this online resource looks into basically what a carer needs to kind of both help someone and support someone, but also to function as an individual and that self-care and all that sort of stuff. So it should be really interesting uh, diving into that conversation. And I suppose looking at how we can better uh, kind of as a community, look after people with mental illness and also make sure people who are in these care roles are also looked after. Uh, mine is actually, I interviewed someone for um, Refugee Day, which just passed on Saturday, the 20th of June, um, on World Refugee Day, artists from official war artists um, prepared a letter in solidarity with refugee Fahad Bandish and everyone who has been silenced and kept in offshore detention in Australia. I was lucky enough to speak to Fahad, who is currently being held in the detention facility 
called Melbourne Immigration Terms and Accommodation. He was moved there recently, two months ago, um, in the middle of the night from the Mancha Hotel in Preston and was all of his... Um, he is an artist, so all of his artistic materials were taken off him and he's not yet had them returned or been allowed to have any more artistic materials. So we spoke to him about his struggles um, since that night and for the last seven years in offshore detention. And, yeah, we it put a lot of things to, to, into perspective and just how the government has been treating him, especially in the last two months. So I guess we'll go into alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right. Okay, so on alternative news, first off, nine entertainment media figures, Jack Khalil and Beck Canavan, have resigned in an act of solidarity uh, with calls for greater diversity, for the need for greater diversity in media. So the two critics were recently employed by Nine Entertainment uh, to be critics within the Age and Sydney Morning Herald papers, and they have almost uh, instantly kind of resigned with calls for um, their their roles to be filled with journalists from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and also from First Nation and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds. Interestingly, uh, this is kind of like a development of this critique of, you know, the whitewashed writing room, and these two journalists have basically been very, very critical. They, they wrote an op- uh, a open statement about it, but it was criticising the lack of diversity within the writing rooms, especially at Nine Entertainment. So that was kind of, I thought, an interesting evolution. And just to show you that things like, you know, uh, the, the protests that we've seen over the last few, few weeks are really maintaining that momentum and we're starting to see some really exciting change all over the place. Also, uh, just as like a catch-up, around Jess's tram thoughts from last week. Uh, I thought I'd just cover in depth the absolute debacle that is currently the university uh, funding overhaul. So just as a catch up last week, it was announced that there would be an overhaul in the costings around different uni courses. So agricultural, agriculture, STEM subjects kind of went down in the amount of cost they were going to have per student. Whilst humanities, economics, politics and social science courses went up in costing, this was justified as trying to funnel more students into job relevant courses um, and was pretty easy to problematize. You can listen to tram thoughts last week to get a bit more details, but the whole policy has basically been critiqued by nearly everyone and has got weirder and weirder as it's progressed. So we found out this week that the overhaul will mean less spending per student. As summarised by uh, The Guardian, the package creates 39,000 new places for students with no extra funding. And through a combination of these fee hikes for humanities, commerce and law, uh, and government funding cuts for fields like including communications, environmental studies, and engineering and science, a lot of courses will get this weird combination of either of getting a little bit more government money, but a big cut to student fees, which means less money overall. So even the courses that have had, you know, cuts to their costs for students like nursing, maths and agriculture won't have the actual supportive funding for like teaching and research and stuff needed to run an actual university. David Tahan, the education minister, has also introduced um, an integrity unit to address unintended consequences of this policy. So that kind of shows you how fast it's been problematized or um, he, he's kind of rushed out this integrity unit, which is supposed to, uh, it's a bit vague, but address issues such as large shifts in enrollment patterns and the quality of education and teaching. 
There's also within this package been an announcement of an industry linkage fund valued at $900 million. And this will be for funding new research, which sounds really great in theory. Uh, but these measures in this industry linkage fund are paid for by cuts to teaching and learning bus budgets estimated to be in about the amount of $750 million. So again, this, this kind of program seems to be kind of quite questionable. And it's also keep, worth keeping in mind that the uni sector is still suffering from the 2017 budget where the federal government cut $2.2 billion from universities uh, through a two-year freeze in Commonwealth grants funding for teaching and learning. So you've kind of got this pressure cooker. Um, and as this policy keeps coming out and Dave Tehan keeps, keeps kind of updating us with new bodies and new websites that are kind of redundant, um, or vague. Uh, it, it's just been a bit of a confusing policy to follow. So uh, that was, I, I thought, Jess, it kind of followed on from last week's madness that we discussed. Yeah, and it just seems like it's going to be a few more months of madness before um, there's actually something settled on. And I know it's going ahead, but it's just so mm. many more facts and figures are coming out and disgracing the government's choices. So it's it'll mm. be really interesting to um, keep updating our listeners on. It will be. And I mean, the decision still has to pass through government. Yes. So there is hopefully the fact that Labour won't support it. Hopefully, you know, hopefully. we'll see a string together of independents <laughs> and Greens and all that sort yeah. of stuff. But um, yeah, definitely a story to watch. Also something, as I said last year, like the fact that student, I know especially the fact that student fees, sorry, student hex debt is now down to $46,000 per annum. So you have yes. to start repaying your hex debt at $46,000, which is just the minimum, you know, yeah. minimum wage. Yep. Uh, there's just been kind of this huge student outcry from student unions about the fact that uh, we're seeing just constant increases to student pressure, like economic pressure and stuff like that. So scary stuff. Yes. Um, there's also the big fear of, um, the fact that universities have become so reliant on international students, and we're going to see a, probably a large dip in that in the coming year. The fact that now universities are scrambling to try and get more domestic students on board, um, but have also made themselves economically very reliant on international students. So hoping we don't see more student uh, uni redundancies and job losses and all that sort of stuff. The other last piece of alternative news that I wanted to touch on actually feeds into your story, Jess, uh, with, asylum seekers the state of asylum seekers and refugees within australia so i thought it was worth noticing noting that protests are continuing around the country this last sunday activists up in brisbane actually mobilized um against the withholding of 120 detainees in a brisbane hotel uh these hotels we have them dotted throughout the east coast of australia where individuals who are from Nauru and Manus and offshore detention centres have been transferred into these hotels and are held in cramped, confined rooms, mm -hmm. unable to practice social distancing or access proper health services. There are horror stories of, like, um, in Melbourne, people being held in the Preston Mantra Hotel, mm -hmm. uh, not being able to access daylight and being driven up to detention centres in Broad Meadows to get, like, an mm -hmm. hour outside. So this is just unacceptable, horrific conditions for people to be put in. Um, protests within Brisbane are looking to ramp up over the coming week uh, with protesters calling out for a blockade and starting to really mobilise around that. So that should be interesting to follow. And if people do want to follow, they can find uh, the main group that's leading this on Facebook. They're called Refugee Solidarity Brisbane uh, Menjin. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, they're calling also for three points, which I thought was worth mentioning. Uh, first, for free movement out of the hotel for us people seeking asylum and, you know, refugees. Secondly, for an end to the involuntary transfers that we've been seeing. And third, for a full community release. Uh, and again, just touching on what you were saying just before, a reminder that this is happening in Melbourne in Preston, and there still remains uh, 200 people on Nauru Island. So this is an issue that we've got to fight for every single day. And there will be an online rally this week held by the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre at 6pm, which listeners can attend by heading to the ASRC website, so the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and signing up. It'll be an online Zoom call rally. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you did mention that did give an update on that, Edwin. Um, after speaking to Fahad, it's quite evident that the government isn't listening to the refugees. And um, the people that I have spoken to from official war artists have said that there is, I've asked them, like, where do I go to help further? Um, how do I, who, which government officials do I speak to? And um, they're just, it's quite scattered at the moment because the government officials aren't doing anything. Even letting someone have their art supplies back, let alone sunlight, as you've said, um, they're imprisoned. And um, I think it's really important that we do stand by in solidarity with protests and um, getting our government to actually do something about these prisons. Yeah. And it is worth mentioning also that obviously people, some of these people have been waiting for up to seven to eight years yes. um, from through offshore detention centres. And we have actually finally seen some movement through our justice system with um, the threats from not the threats, I should say, the warnings to Dutton for his lengthy decision-making process yes. over like different claims, uh, one claim in particular, but that has been, that's, that's threatened Dutton with contempt of court. So mm. I think really now is the time <laughs> to, to, push for it. <laughs> to push for it. Yeah. Um, Cause we might actually see some movement from our justice system, which would be nice to hold accountable the government. <laughs> So that's my alternative news. Uh, wrapping up this kind of segment, I also just wanted to bring up the fact that 3CR's uh, station appeal is ending. And if anyone listening would still like to rush in with a last minute donation, uh, they still can. We have links up on our website. So that's at 3cr.org.au. And I definitely encourage anyone who hasn't gone on and donated to do so. We have been hit quite hard by COVID this year. We've not been able to run our usual radiothon, which means we haven't been able to provide it as steady or consistent of the station appeal. So every dollar really does count. Um, of course, anything is appreciated. We're not asking people to spend millions on us, uh, but it, it really does go towards keeping the station alive and running. And especially with how terrible 2020 has been, 3CR grows more relevant by the day within bringing truth <laughs> accountability and transparent news rather than the rubbish that you see on commercial news and me you know mainstream media outlets so please 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 if you do have something that you can you know support the station with or feedback into the station remember we're channeling your voices back onto community air and we want to hopefully continue um to do so so yeah we we, we do need to get on to station appeal and all that and I believe with that conclusion, we'll now head into some funky music and start off the show.
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now, until very recently, the gay dating app Grindr had an ethnicity filter built in. It was a function that allowed users to filter dating profiles based on ethnicity labels. Yet in response to the Black Lives Matter movement, last month, Grindr announced it would remove the filter from the app. And so while a positive step, and arguably a step that should never have been needed, the gay dating scene still has a reputation for being racist and in the Australian context, discriminatory against Indigenous Australians. To speak with us more, joining us, we have Bronwyn Carlson, Professor of Indigenous Studies at the Faculty of Arts at Macquarie University. Her research focuses on the politics of Indigenous identity, particularly on what it means to identify as an Aboriginal person today and focusing on what constitutes and is constitutive of Aboriginal identity in contemporary times. Bronwyn, welcome to the show. Good morning and thank you for having me on your program. So what are the kinds of stories and experiences that we are hearing that many Indigenous Australians face on gay dating apps like Grindr? Well, there are a multitude of stories um, and some that we will would consider like really upsetting and disturbing and hateful and they can really only be described as racist um, and this is where you see comments that draw on hateful stereotypes like Indigenous people are petrol sniffers, um, or there's resentment that's expressed um, by some in their belief that Indigenous people get everything for free and are undeserving, or comments that are posted like no abos, um, and where violence is direct like um, I'll come and F you in all your black holes, or do you want me to treat you like Captain Cook did back in the day? Um, and then there are those where relationships have actually formed and been long lasting. So in an interview um, I did the other day, a gay um, Indigenous man told me that he had had a relationship for over five years that he had met via Grinder. So there's this, you know, wonderful relationships happening as well. And then there are some really sort of funny stories where people are really thankful that our kinship systems still operate. Um, and that stories can be told about who we're related to, because we have to remember that, um, you know, the violence of colonialism meant that, you know, some people don't always know who they're related to. Um, and so when we're finding or seeking out relationships online, we might not know the person or their surname, but they could be directly related to us. Mm. I mean, you raise an interesting point is that I guess one of the benefits of these apps like Tinder and Grindr is that it enables people to, as you say, maybe explore kinship, but also explore maybe their sexuality or the ability to be in relationships easier than previous generations, particularly people in the queer community. Do you think that kind of progression through this use of technology is helping or hindering racism in the dating scene? Well, online dating has certainly had many benefits for people in enabling them to be involved in a great pool of possible partners and to explore their own sexuality uh, without the dangers that some of the face-to-face -face, um, interactions may pose. 
Um, and this is especially the case if you live in more rural or remote locations. So, um, you know, the pool of in your direct vicinity might be very, very small. Um, but racism when seeking relationships or hookups is not really new. Um, the violence of race hate um, has not just appeared because of dating apps. I mean, dating online, like our experiences on other social media apps, is that it's ubiquitous. So um, we're constantly connected, receiving messages and notifications. Um, and we can be, and you, you're compelled to check them, even though you might say to yourself, I'm just not even going to look. And I know myself, you know, um, from a conversation article I wrote, I'm just compelled to read uh, the comments, even though I know it's going to be horrific. So you're compelled to check it, you know, and every time you hear the beat, you want to have a look. Um, and so that there can be no boundaries then at times between your work life, your home life, your downtime, your other activities. And so that takes a huge toll on um, people. And then we have to think about that, like world affairs, uh, impact dating apps also. And we've seen a rise of white supremacy thinking across the world, um, which is why we saw the rise of the global Black Lives Matter movement in response. Um, and so that plays out online as well, where um, people feel like they have to um, suggest that white lives matter also, even though that's not really what the Black Lives Matter movement is about, <laughs> um, saying that white lives don't matter. Um, but the biggest issue, I guess, is really a lack of research that focuses on Indigenous people's experiences. But we still know very little about um, the way in which our lives are impacted by online dating, um, what these interactions mean. What are the um, impacts of violence? What are the incidences of violence that has come from online dating? We just know so very little. Mm. And I guess there are, as you say, there are such a multitude of experiences that people have, both positive and negative, both violent and nonviolent. How do you think these experiences and both those kinds of experiences are influencing how many queer Indigenous men would then develop and understand their own intersectional identity? For queer Indigenous men, the potential for love and intimacy and pleasure on dating apps is always counterbalanced by uh, the potential um, violence of racism. So that, that's a reality, so they have to balance that out. And racism has a powerful and negative impact on people's self-worth um, and self-image. And we know this by research um, on racism and the impact on people. So people are really, you know, um, occupying these spaces in ways that they have to remain vigilant um, the Indigenous queer community is relatively small and therefore at risk of being outed or known also on dating apps. And that's a real concern for some, especially young people, um, as they're exploring who they are, to be outed on um, social, on any kind of social media and dating app it would be horrific. And I had one example um, in a, one of my um, interviews where a young Indigenous man was um, held a, a position of authority in the community um, in terms of his work. Um, but he was on Grinder in a, uh, a private uh, way in, in his life as a gay person. His work didn't know that he was gay and nor did members of his family, but he was exploring his identity on Grinder and um, going on dates and other such things. And he saw his cousin on there. And they didn't know he was gay and his family didn't know. And he, was, he felt a great deal of apprehension about that, like what, or anxiety really, what's going to happen um, if my workplace finds out that I'm gay, you know, and we might like to think we live in a progressive world, but we don't necessarily do so. And, and in some of our communities, um, there's a lot of homophobia as well. So if we're really scared about um, being outed by using that, uh, the online world is a you know, real benefit um, to queer people. 
um, in many ways also, particularly because they could feel isolated in their communities and can struggle to locate potential partners. So there's that side of it as well. Our research has definitely shown that for many online, for many being online has been productive in meeting other queer people. And I'd have to say that the work of my colleague, Andrew Farrell, who's a queer scholar, and he's been looking at um, indigenous people online on social media and um, you know, his work has, has demonstrated that the online space has been hugely benefit, benefited for, um, you know, the queer community to find um, other queer people to uh, interact with, to develop their own sense of who they are um, as a young queer person, trying to navigate both racism and homophobia in the world um, as a scary, um, you know, prospect. So, you know, Andrew's work is really, really important in that space. Um, yeah, and he's demonstrated that online space is really, really um essential to the Indigenous queer community. Um, so he's been sort of doing some work and dipping into the sort of um, dating side of stuff. And, you know, he, he argues that there's really limited research, which there is, uh, which engages in this sort of complex intersection of Indigenous um, queer, sex and gender, uh, and sexually diverse populations who, um, you know, really experience this uh, unique and compounding forms of violence and discrimination online. So it's not just that they're Indigenous and it's not just that they're queer, these things kind of explode together. And so it's uh, multi-layered and really complex. But I'm excited that we might see some interesting research in that space in the future. And I'm sure we will with Andrew's work. And so I was reading some of your research about in response to some of the violence that people face is that they then start to create their own persona of what society envisages that they should be online because they feel that once they reveal that they have an Indigenous background, then the, the mood of the conversation dramatically shifts so has this impacted how people then develop their own identity in terms of suppressing their own cultural identity? Yeah, well, I use one example in my research where uh, women from an isolated community used um, online dating sites for some flirtatious messaging, um, but they had no real intention of ever taking things further. And I think that's the point. Um, they were subverting the system for their own amusement um, and they used avatars of people who were not necessarily look anything like them. Um, and so I'm not sure if this is widespread. People do what they need to do to survive in these spaces, um, which are not necessarily safe. Um, but the situation is quite different if your intention is to meet or hook up. So then you're limited in the way in which you could fashion your profile. Um, so, you know, people might in these cases then just leave off the fact that they're Indigenous if they uh, don't look phenotypically uh, a particular way that someone might identify as Indigenous. So there's safety strategies at play, but I wouldn't say it's widespread if you want to actually have face-to-face -face interactions. How does the, the threat of, of physical violence influence how many Indigenous people would use the apps? If at all, they would continue to use the apps. Look, people who use dating apps develop their own ways of managing risk and safety, but platforms really should have a duty of care in this space as well. Um, digital spaces like, um, you know, Grindr and Tinder, these are important sites for connection, community, friendship for queer folk particularly, um, but, you know, Indigenous people overall. But they're also channels for, like, you know, a, a lot of hatred and bigotry, and so that's dangerous. And the threat of physical violence, you know, it's always lurking in the background for Indigenous people who are navigating social media and dating, dating apps. Um, you know, they reveal a, a deep-seated hatred for Aboriginal people, which is really scary in this um, day and age. And it really has little to do with the physical characteristics and much more to do about uh, to do with racist ideologies. And so, for um, example, in that one paper that I wrote, I spoke about how the tables turned really quickly when the person identified themselves as Indigenous. So it wasn't 
um, really immediately visible or identifiable to the person they were chatting with. But the minute um, they made some comment that they were indigenous or talked about indigenous things or reacted to um, derogatory um, comments about indigenous people, and then the tables flip very quickly. Um, but people use all sorts of strategies to keep themselves safe. And, you know, the reality is, is that we teach our children um, ways to operate in the world to keep safe. Like, we have to. Um, so people have told me that they, like, will turn off the location function, for example, for very real fear of being located if they've had a negative interaction with somebody in regards to their indigeneity. Um, you know, um, they really interact with other people with trepidation as well. They like they try and just sort of like ease into it and find out the kind of character of the person. Um, some try and find other profiles of the person, like they might do a bit of like Google stalking and, and have a look at Facebook or other um, social media sites just to kind of gauge whether they'll continue chatting. You know, we might be able to tell from someone's profile, do they hold kind of racist views against Indigenous people particularly. Um, some, like I said, don't openly identify um, and don't have anything on their profile that would make it obvious that they're Indigenous. And some will use um, alternate um, names, profile names on different sites so that they can't easily be located. So if someone else is Google um, stalking them, for example, they're not going to easily find them, say, on Facebook and be able to recognise them as um, Indigenous. But in, Indigenous people sadly understand that the threat of violence is real and not just in relation to dating apps. So, you know, we have to be alert. When there are these moments of hatred and, hatred and racism and violence, are there spaces and resources that those experiencing them can turn to? Well, from the people who have spoken to me about their experiences, um, you know, in terms of hateful, racist or violent sort of comments, and they, they've kind of reacted in different ways. So some share posts on their other social media platforms um, and to call out those people who are particularly racist. And this helps them, um, helps others avoid interaction with those people. But it also gives a digital account of the incident in case anything happens. So it's a way of recording like, you know, look out for me. This is what's happened to me. And it also gives people a sense of support from their online community of other Indigenous people to say, hey, this is not cool. Whatever they're saying to you doesn't count. We love you. We care about you. Um, others block and ignore because, like, dealing with this takes a great deal of labour for many Indigenous people. This kind of um, labour is required of us every aspect of our lives, you know, when we're dealing with the public. We're either coping with racism or having to educate people about their racism. And it's just an exhausting endeavour. You know, like we're constantly having to do this. So some people just block and just like, meh, don't care about you, I'm moving on. Um, but from my own research, I know that many Indigenous people um, seek help from informal sources, such as their family and friends, so not necessarily um, from the platforms themselves. Um, so they'll look up people they're connected with on social media platforms or their own family. Um, and, you know, from experience, many know that social media platforms really do little um, to protect Indigenous people from racism. And indeed, on, there's many examples where Indigenous people have reported racism and they themselves has been, have been blocked by um, platforms for inappropriate content, etc. And, you know, most of these uh, platforms have little engagement with Indigenous people. They rarely, if at all, and I don't know any yet, that have Indigenous employees or really strong relationships with Indigenous people and organisations to fully understand the impact 
um, of, and the high level of racism Indigenous people face. And one of the examples, and it's a, just a very quick and easy example to give, is, you know, on, in these online spaces, you might get accused of being an ape or referred to as an ape or memes made about you as an ape. Well, that doesn't actually breach any of these social media platforms' um, standards. But for us here in, in Australia, Indigenous people, that's a massive racist slur. Um, and it's hateful. And it comes from a, a time when we're, we're treated as animals and, and registered as um, less than human. So it has this like historical violence with it. So, but it wouldn't register as something that needed um, intervention. And, but if you had Indigenous employees or you had a strategy within your organisation to deal with um, you know, uh, racism and online violence directed towards Indigenous people of the country that platform is operating in, then they'd have a better understanding of how that impacts the lives of Indigenous people. Mm. I think, as you said on your, your first point, it's, it's sort of interesting how these apps, although based on connection, are actually incredibly isolating in terms of the experiences that people can have. And so having those sort of shared platforms of people sharing profiles that are sort of red flags or communicating, you know, this is okay, supporting each other, it's incredibly important and valuable. Um, I guess trying to move positively forwards, although you've kind of alluded to that this is not looking great in its current situation. How can um, apps like Tinder and Grindr start to create safer spaces for people of colour online? Well, I guess it's not just for people of colour because Indigenous people are not necessarily people of colour, but they are Indigenous and it is their indigeneity that's the target of most of the racism. Um, and people, and that's necessary, that is the case from people who've spoken to me. But many reported that they, um, you know, have been engaged in this kind of playful, flirtatious messaging until the moment their Indigenous identity is apparent. And then they receive these vile and hateful messages. And some of these messages are so vile that they, the ones they've told me about, that beggars belief that the same person who was flirting a message ago is capable of such revolting uh, violent messages. So dating apps are really just a micro, um, a microcosm of the, the world that we live in. You know, when I think about it, not one day goes by when there's no stories of racism and violence towards Indigenous people. So we see deaths in custody, like every single day I'm seeing people suffering from police violence, racism online, experienced every single day. But I also see it in healthcare, I see it at, you know, in the schools, and even from our governments. Um, so we see it constantly. So, but if online um, dating platforms want to become spaces where Indigenous people can express themselves um, and seek out intimacy and companionship, then they really have to put like anti-racism at the forefront of their policies and content moderation. You know, it's not good enough to expect that users of their platform have to moderate this for them and do the labour for them. And that is the case for Indigenous people. Like we are constantly having to report on, on this stuff where there needs to be, uh, I think, a bigger focus from these platforms to really embed anti-racism um, into their policies and practices. And I see that, you know, Grindr has taken down the ethnicity where you can no longer sort of choose an ethnicity of somebody that you might be seeking, but that doesn't stop racism. So for one, the ethnicity filter never included Indigenous people to start with, that on that filter, they would have to identify as other. And there ain't no black fella I know who's going to tick, I'm other. So it, most of them are modelled on a US kind of uh, range of ethnicities, nothing to do with Australia. So really, if you're operating in Australia, you should think about the Australian context. And that's why it continues to impact Indigenous people primarily because there is no focus on Indigenous people as a cultural group specific, and it has specific and unique experiences with violence and history. So, yeah, without that kind of focus, 
how do we do something that has an anti-racist approach or that will make change in a positive way? It really does seem like the sort of the dating apps are very much a litmus for how broader society is is engaging with Indigenous populations. And as you say, the because people are so racist on these platforms, then that kind of feeds into every other part of their everyday life. But it's particularly pronounced and particularly intense on, on these apps. Um, Bronwyn, thank you so much for coming onto the show and, and sharing your research. And thanks for your interest in the research. Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident, or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. And in our next interview, we will be discussing mental health and illness, including references to suicide. Now, I just wanted to issue a content warning. Um, This will be a discussion from a community angle where we look at how we can all support one another through our mental health, um, especially in our role as carers with those with mental illness. However, I just want to let listeners know that we will be jumping into this. To chat further, I have the CEO of SANE Australia, Jack Heath. SANE is a national mental health charity dedicated towards providing services, resources and support to people living with complex mental health issues. And today we'll be discussing their most recent project, You Are Not Alone, an online resource that gives information and tools to carers throughout the many stages of supporting someone who has attempted suicide or who is at risk of doing so. So good morning, Jack. Good morning. Great to be with you. Great to be with you too. Kicking off, I wanted to get your thoughts on like carers and their ongoing role in supporting someone who is suffering from mental illness or suicidal thoughts. What, why, who are they, I suppose, and why are they such a significant part of the recovery process? Well, I, I think one of the things to say is that there's just literally millions of people who, who would fall into this category, even if they might not identify in those ways. So, you know, in terms of SANE's work, um, as you mentioned, we focus on complex mental health issues and that will include people who are happy to, um, take a diagnosis of something like schizophrenia or bipolar and very severe forms of depression, anxiety and the like. Um, And also to people who have experienced complex trauma and also people experiencing very high levels of psychological distress. So it's those three buckets, if you like, who are the people that SANE focuses on. And um, that number comes to just, it's around about 1 million people Australia-wide. And so if you think that for each of those people, Um, There will be maybe three, four, maybe five people directly impacted. Not all of them will be in that caring role. They might not identify as such, but those people are going to be very likely to have a first-hand experience of dealing with that very complex mental health issue. So when you do the math on all that, we're talking about a couple of million people in Australia um, who are having a very sort of um, direct relationship. As I say, they may not characterise themselves as a carer, but they're attending to the needs of a dear friend loved one who's dealing with quite complex mental health issues. And I was supposing, what are some of the common misconceptions around being a carer? What, what, you know, how are they perceived and what current support systems exist for them? Yeah, look, um, I think carers by and large are hugely under-resourced and, and underappreciated. Um, in terms of one of the things that we know with, with SANE, we do online community forums where we have one group of forums for people who've got a lived experience of a complex mental health issue. And then there is um, another forum for those who are carers. 
And what we, what we notice there is that often when carers are looking for support or connection, they'll sort of just dip in and dip out again. They're not part of a carer's community because they're so focused usually in terms of that particular person they're trying to, um, to help or who they're very concerned about. So often the focus of carers is on other people and not necessarily about taking good care of themselves in very, very difficult circumstances. And we also know that um, a number of carers themselves will have mental health issues because often that almost selfless focus on others can mm. be to the detriment of looking after yourself. I think the other thing too is that um, um, people sort of have this misconception that um, oh, it's easy to care or if you love for someone, you, you know how to support them. And particularly, you know, as the focus of this resource is around um, suicide attempts, that that's something that comes easily to people. It can often be really difficult, and um, you know, I, I, I go back. I go back a couple of decades now, but um, I remember when my my mother first um, um, got admitted to um, the uh, hospital down in psych hospital down in Melbourne, and you know, you're sort of there caring for them. And this first um, the first instance or the first time that it happens, it's really quite difficult to know what to do. How do you navigate the system? Um, who are these different people? There's a whole lot of um, acronyms or terms that are used by people who are familiar with it on a daily basis. So when you come into this caring experience for the first time, it can be really difficult, really confronting. And also to, if it's brought someone to sort of, you know, hospital or whatever, it's obviously getting into that severe and complex category. And often the person that you will have known and looked after or been close to for many years might have changed in quite a fundamental way. So that first experience of caring when a mental illness sort of arises actually can be really, really tough um, for people. Um, and the other thing too is that is because of, if you like, the busyness um, of people and often people are having to step back from um, work to cut back their hours. Mm -hmm. um, there are an enormous number of pressures that are there on people who are caring. And I think um, sometimes the notion that oh, you're a carer, it sort of sounds a bit warm and fuzzy, mm. but actually the practice of doing the caring can be really hard and difficult. So I think until you've experienced that yourself, you might have a bit of a naive idea in terms of what it means to be a carer. But once you've had to care for someone, you know, even initially, but over an extended period of time when they're dealing with complex mental health issues and including most especially if they've attempted suicide, it's it's a really it's a really hard gig for for, for people to do and to do well. Mm. Well, I, want, I wanted to touch on this because obviously this online resource is dedicated purely towards supporting carers. And I, I mean, you've brought it up just then, but the role of being a carer is a tenuous position and it's a disorientating position. So I suppose, uh, I suppose, how does this online resource help people navigate that space? And you know, how does this resource support carers through it? Yeah, so I think the thing about this resource, um, as you said in, in the intro, it's, it's about supporting um, someone, carers, but who's caring for someone who's either recently attempted suicide or has got a history of suicide attempts and might be at risk of suicide now. Mm -hmm. So the thing around this is that we, we sat down and we actually surveyed over 450 people right around Australia um, to understand what they felt their needs were when they were caring for someone in this position. Mm. And having done that survey, we then also drilled down and did 30 very in-depth um, interviews um, with a number of people to try and understand what was really important for them. One of the things that came up loud and clear is that 
it's not always necessarily a linear journey. It's not as if it starts here and it ends there. Mm. It's more of a sort of a circular um, process. And so what we wanted to do with the resource was to, um, and this is when people have a look at it on the website, is to try and sort of get a sense that this is a, you could be at different points on the circle in terms of caring. And people wanted to be able to dip into a particular issue um, that was relevant to them at that particular point in time. So for us, the thing around this is that you really, when you're doing your research in terms of developing these resources, to, to key into the lived experience of people who are dealing with these things on a, on a daily basis is the best way to actually design this resource. And I must say, even though we're, we're sort of in the early stages of having launched the resource, um, we've already had feedback from a couple of individuals saying, this is the best resource of its kind that I've ever come across. Mm. I think part of the reason for that is that there are not a lot of resources for carers, particularly around when someone's attempted suicide. So it's kind of like, it's because it's so specific, it's so tailored, it really does match the needs of the individuals. Yeah, and, and it's to, to understand that the journey will be different for different people at different mm. points in time. But when you come to the You Are Not Alone resource, um, you can come with the knowledge that actually this has been developed off the basis of not one, two, three, four, five, but literally 400 people's feedback. And mm. then also, as I say, we've dipped down and go much more deeper analysis with particular individuals in terms of, well, what were the questions that popped up for you? What are the things that you wanted to know about? Um, and one of the things that was very clear was, you know, we hear things like cat teams and all this other terminology. What is all that about? So part of it's about being able to give an explanation to what those terms are so that people feel a bit more comfortable. And we do that in fairly straightforward, clear um, language. And then the other thing too, obviously people are wanting to know about what particular resources are available um, to me as well. Um, I need to say that this particular project, um, it arose a couple of years ago where someone who in fact had actually um, lost a family member to suicide we were talking to him and he, he was saying, look, I really want to do something that's going to make a significant difference. I've got a certain amount of money. Um, can I put it towards, you know, towards this particular project? And, and for us, the issue was that this issue around supporting carers was really difficult. And yeah. often too, is that people just don't know what to say um, if there's someone that's um, attempted suicide. I mean, do you, do you raise the issue? Do you not raise the issue? How yeah. do you address it? These are like real live questions um, for people. And so for us, we felt that there was a real gap um, in terms of what services are being offered there. And so this was something that we wanted to try and address that address that gap. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's such a disorientating uh, role and such a taboo topic, mental illness in general, that it makes it quite hard to broach, or as you said, know what to say. I suppose I also wanted to touch on for the care the need for self-care and the need to be able to make a distinction between where an individual can help and should support someone who's going through these complex mental health issues and where someone needs to step back and it can be damaging or inappropriate to help and striking that balance. How's that, has this resource kind of addressed that as well? Yeah. So, so I think one of the ways, I mean, as you say, it's, it's really important to strike that balance because you know, when, when, when a loved one is sort of in a highly distressed state, your immediate move or urge is to go and actually sort of engage with that, with that particular person. And, and also, too, is that, in a sense, like the heat, the emotion comes up. The issue, though, is as you sort of build up that heat or that warmth in your heart, how do you make sure that you keep your head cool? Because the tendency can sometimes be to rush in. And also because um, a suicide attempt 
um, and depending on you know what's happened, what the circumstances mm. are, is so traumatic. The risk is that um, you can sort of go in well-intentioned, try to help, and actually um, you, you may not be helping that particular person. So, so a couple of the things here is what's important is in terms of understanding what are the resources um, that there that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I I had a um, I had a work colleague a um, couple of well, it's probably probably about a year or so ago who rang me up um, very distressed because um, it turned out that um, one of the family members that was, um, was in the process or planned to attempt suicide. And um, I could sort of provide some of my suggestions and advice, but I said, look, why don't you call a suicide callback hotline mm. and speak to them? And I think the thing is that when you connect up with an organisation or an entity which is used to dealing with these sorts of events on a regular basis, it gives you a bit more confidence. And so in this particular incident, when they did ring up the suicide callback service, the advice was, I mean, mine wasn't perfect, but it was a similar, similar sort of advice. But when you're getting it from an expert and you know that this is someone who deals with these issues on a daily basis, it gives you a bit more of a sense about what, how much you need to worry about, uh, what are the sort of you know, advice, be open to hearing what they suggest you can do. Mm. And, um, and certainly in terms of that particular situation, I know that things worked out, you know, incredibly well because of that. So part of it is connecting to people who've got expertise around this and who've been there and dealt with these situations um, on a regular basis. And so when they say to you, look, um, this, you've done as much as you can, this is what you can do, do that, and then actually go and make yourself a cup of tea, go for a walk, take time, look after yourself, I think those things are really, um, really important to hear as well. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, another part I want to bring up, and you've spoken about this throughout the interview, but is the, on, is the use of uh, lived experiences and voices through this online resource. Um, these stories are obviously powerful, but hold a lot of trauma and weight. Has the resource use them in a way that means they inform, they can empathize and they connect, but they don't necessarily overwhelm or they don't, uh, I suppose, yeah, put carers in a, in a weird position where you, you're having a lot of lived experience or personal stories kind of come through. Yeah, look, I, I, in terms of that lived experience, um, you know, it's it's part of SANE's DNA. I mean, we we started almost 35 years ago um, and it was, you know, a young man stood up. Um, you know, the story goes, it was a wet and windy time. This was actually up in Sydney, although Mark Leggett from Melbourne was one of the um, co-founders. Mm -hmm. But that in the midst of this gathering of people who were concerned what was happening after all the institutions being closed down, um, a young man, um, Simon Champ, stood up and said, my name's Simon Champ and I have schizophrenia. And in fact, at Sane Australia, if you come into our boardroom, you'll see it's named as the Simon Champ boardroom. Mm. Because for us... That, that, that lived experience is absolutely critical to informing how we design our services. And, and also to, is, is that it's, it's affirming in terms of people's ability to be able to deal with these really difficult issues. And, you know, personally, I, I, I got involved in mental health. I'd had, you know, family members. I had a young cousin who had schizophrenia that died from suicide. Um, when I came to saying this is about eight years or so ago, I had a pretty um, stereotypical sort of idea of what it meant to have these complex mental conditions like schizophrenia. Mm. And what I found though, was that as, as you met more people who were there as what we call today our peer ambassadors, and we've got about over 80 of these around Australia, mm. is that those people's lived experience and talking about how they're dealing with these complex mental health issues 
um, and how they're managing these, you know, quite quite difficult situations, mm. but in a way that's quite inspiring and affirming. For us, it's really important to have those, you know, those stories front and centre, because you know I can I can sort of you know we can talk and I can sort of say things um, to you as a mental health professional or whatever, but when I mm. speak to you off the back of my own experience and my own reality, and it's something that you relate to. I think then it has a whole sort of added dimension to it. So, of course, we need to be relying on that expertise. But the lived experience thing, when you make that heart connection to that reality that the person is dealing with, when, when you make that connection, then what happens is that not only does their heart open up, but their mind opens up. And so they're more receptive mm-hmm. to hearing new messages in terms of what it might have worked for that particular person. So lived experience, absolutely critical, essential. And I think over the past, probably about the five, past five years, excuse me, is that a lot of the mental health services, um, lived experience has really come to the fore. I think that's a great thing. We're probably lagging a little bit in terms of hearing the voices of carers and other people who are supporting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that's, and that's something that can be really sort of challenging. Um, we, know, we know from the international evidence that when you involve carers um, in, that, in that journey, in that process, that the results um, end up being so much better than would otherwise be the case. Um, there is sometimes, however, the fact though, that people who have got these complex mental health issues may well have had a traumatic experience within family. So that's always a bit of a delicate balance to strike, but usually that is going to be the exception. And and what we know is that if you can get carers and family involved in the recovery process early on, the results are substantially better. So if you like, bringing that lived experience in terms of the caring experience is also critical as well. well fantastic. And I suppose the last thing I wanted to touch on is this is an evidence-based approach uh, or resource made in conjunction with the University of New England and the University of Sydney. Um, and, and you've spoken on the, the fact that uh, you conducted 450 surveys, 30 de- in-depth interviews, and that research and personal experience heavily underpins this project. I suppose... Will there be an opportunity for people who are using this and potentially, you know, carers who are engaging with it to feedback more information or more data so you can continually build the resource? Yeah, look, um, absolutely. And, and sorry, I should correct myself. It wasn't 450, it was 750. It's 750 people, not 450. I'll be in trouble, I'll be in trouble for some not getting that right. Um, but but um, as I say, th- this is, this is a, if you like, an initial resource. So... Mm. Um, we, we haven't picked up any significant government funding. So what we're looking to do is to get further feedback. We are evaluating the extent to which we've been able to get um, to get the sort of the, the, the resource out there. We've worked with a couple of primary health networks. Um, the way that we've developed it at the moment is just as a resource on the same website. So you need to go to sane.org and you'll be able to track through there to the you know, Not Alone resource. Mm-hmm. But based on, and what's at this stage is initial feedback and anecdotal feedback, though it's been hugely positive. And so the question for us is that we are continuing to work with the, um, with the universities in terms of evaluating how well we've disseminated it. Mm-hmm. And I think love to get sort of further feedback because the initial indications are that we've developed something there for which there's a huge need. And we'd be super keen to look at whether or not, you know, developing something like this as an app or some other 
um, you know, additional written resources might be useful. I must say though, that when we did do that survey, that people were saying that they wanted something online, that that was where they wanted to get the information. Okay. Uh, yeah. But I think opportunity now to um, get some more feedback in terms of, you know, how people have found the resource um, and also to then hopefully to provide, you know, the grounds for saying, let's take this resource and develop more extensively. I mean, one of the things is that because of the limited funding, we had to get it up and running. When we point to people to resources, we're pointing them just to national resources. So ideally, if you're able to be able to sort of go down to a particular community and have that sort of information, um, that would be wonderful as well. Um, but for the moment, it's, it's a, as I say, it's that initial resource. Um, it's been informed by people's experience. We've had a positive response initially. And so really appreciative of the opportunities to be talking with you and for your listeners to be able to stand, understand that the resource is there. Um, because one of the things that happens is that when, when people are caring, often you're not engaged in sort of media or other things that most, in the way that most people are. So you, you're more sort of like, you know, you're down there trying to help the particular person. And as I say, around a suicide attempt, your focus becomes, you know, very, very laser-like. And so the question for us is how do we get people to understand that this resource um, is there? And just the last thing is to say is that each year um, we have around about 100,000 Australians attempt suicide. 100,000. So not all those attempts will be known by loved ones and carers. Sometimes it can happen sort of, you know, privately and people don't let on. Mm. But the fact is that each year, um, and if you think that it's just a couple of people impacted, we've got a couple of hundred thousand people for whom a resource like this could be particularly valuable. And so for us, it's really important about how do we get it out there to as many people as possible. Well, thank you so much, Jack, for coming on and talking about this, uh, about SANE's new resource. I think, as you say, it addresses an essential gap in services or resources and provides support that will help us have that wider community approach in in some ways because we'll be able to support, support, support and build a supporting network. Um, we'll make sure that uh, the link to the resources in our rundown. And, yeah, thank you again for coming on. Oh, fantastic. Thanks so much for, um, you know, making the time and, and getting the word out there to so many people. Uh, now, I just wanted to read out the Lifeline Australia number for anyone who found any of that information distressing or potentially bringing up anything of crisis. Uh, the number is 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. As well as the Beyond Blue, uh, 1300 That's 1300 Welcome back to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And for this week's Tram Thoughts, I thought we we're going to do a bit of a dive into the idea of living in a commune or communal housing. So if I was to ask both you, Jess and Iwin, what is a housing commune? What comes to mind? Okay, well, we have my... We have the cynical and we have the delightful, I suppose. Uh, mm-hmm. Cynical would start off with things like Jamestown, Waco, uh, any commune you want in middle band America, which has gone, you know, a bit too Jesus culty and has got just, just culty um, and ended poorly. But then again, I also think of like, um, I can't remember the name of it, but the famous commune in New Zealand, which functioned quite well for a while. So I suppose I, when I think of commune, what comes to mind is really good intentions 
spiraling into disasters or fading out. So you've kind of thought about it as a really separated thing from society. Yes. Yes. Societal structure. Okay. Yes. I think, Uh, I think the popular examples I can think of are very isolated. Okay. Yes. I, when I think of a commune, I don't, Obviously, I do think of those examples as well, but I sort of just go to this simple origin of share houses and people living together um, and also the problems that stem in share houses possibly growing um, in larger communes um, around the world. Uh, so, yeah, I think I sort of just think with... I always just think of the base origin of looking, looking at my friends who are in share houses and who don't really know each other or do know each other and, like, eight people in a house who are just sort of getting by and trying to be respectful but having those issues that they really need to come to a crossroad at. That's what Stepping on people's yes. toes. <laughs> like, yeah, and really learning and trying or hopefully learning. Sometimes you have a bad one that you have to kick out. But, you know, it's just that learning process and trying to be respectful of one another. That's what I think mm. of. So between two of you, you've kind of hit both extremes of what kind of, it always, it, it's, never, it's never planned. It always just happens this way that you come with very different views and it like nicely bookmarks the argument. Anyway, um, so across the world, we're seeing actually a really sustained and continued rise in more deliberate communes and cooperatives, housing cooperatives. So in essence, I guess you could say they're kind of, either like a building or a collection of buildings, if you're thinking more about a society, where people start to co-live with each other in a more intense form than just a single dwelling house or apartment or something where you're kind of separated from your neighbours. And so I guess you could say it's kind of similar to a share house, Jess, but maybe it's more up to like 20 people. Like it's it's a substantial size. It's more than what would be common in a group of housing. Um, and it's also not just sort of youth or young adults. It also includes families, elderly. There's a big cross cut across society. And so this has actually been really popularized recently due to the rise of something called the Baugruppen model, which has become a very common thing in Berlin, Germany. So the word Baugruppen is German for meaning building group. And what these are, they're these kind of self-initiated, community-oriented living collectives. So it's a group of people who come together saying, we want to live together as a group. And so they generally employ some kind of like designer or architect or builder to help design the building with them, think about how they get the land, and then think about how much do they want to share with each other? Like how much privacy have they got? How much more is public and shared? And every single bow group is different. It's depending on the unique kind of mix of people and what they feel comfortable with. And so it's typical in Berlin that a lot of them will have big shared gardens and community gardens, which are then also open to the public. It's pretty common to have a shared kitchen, generally like an industrial style kitchen. Maybe it's everyone kind of cooks their own meals individually. Maybe it's a big meal served by someone every week or every night. It's, it's completely up to every single group of people. But pretty typically, there's a really strong focus on the ideas of inclusion and including a wide range of people, both in terms of background, but also ages and demographics. A strong focus on community, a strong focus on mixed use, so not just residential living, but also maybe there's cafes and businesses and various other things kind of packaged into one. And also really focusing on affordability. 
And so, yeah, there's kind of varying degrees to this. Sometimes it's literally just everyone kind of has individual apartments with a little kitchenette and then there's a big shared kitchen. So there's one of those popping up in Melbourne, which is really cool, called Urban Coop. Um, but sometimes it's actually, as Iwan kind of was more alluding to, it's entire like eco-villages and have their own governance structures and societies and they're kind of essentially closed off to the external world. So you kind of get a big spread. But I guess my first question I want to ask is, do you actually know anyone who lives in a housing cooperative or environment like this? I, I don't personally. I, the closest I've, I myself lived in a dormitory overseas for two months and it was, um, it it was in Oman and we, it was a university sort of layout. It was a dormitory. So it was with the youth, as I was saying before, and it's quite different from what you're saying, but it, I liked Elemental it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed it. We all sort of had the idea that we would cook together and clean together and take responsibility for the area together. Um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. That's the closest sort of that I've got to knowing personally and knowing anyone else that has done it. But um, mm. I thoroughly enjoyed it and would probably would. want to further it. Yeah, no, I, I actually know a few people who do. Um, I, I won't speak too much on them because it's obviously it's their stories to tell, uh, but they basically have bought up a big block of land with a bunch of other families and are living on it. Uh, one of them who I know, they have like a big, they have like two portables, which are kind of like the meeting sharing house of that, of the, like the, the few families. Um, and they use that to kind of, you know, do those big group decisions, I suppose. So yeah, um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like, I, th I think there are more of them popping up or there are more that we're not maybe aware of dotted throughout the country. I would say a combination of the two. Hmm. Would you feel comfortable living in one, do you think? It, I think... I mean, <laughs> you go, Edwin. I was going to say, like, my best friend and I are pretty pretty set. We're going to buy a block of land and build some tiny houses on them. Like, that's 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 what's coming. Um, I've I'm been told that we have to have two things, which is a vegetable patch and some chickens. So <laughs> sign me up. Why not? You're if so I can still afford it, I'm, I'm set. I'm going for it. <laughs> for a moment, when you said two things, it was going to be like, I'm going to need, like, you know, a land title and this. And you're like, no, no, no. I need a chicken coop and a veggie patch. <laughs> We also want to be, we want to be off grid. Uh, so that's, that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah, I am. I am the same. I, I know it's completely different as I've already said, but the dormitory living and living together and it wasn't a dormitory feel. It was like a group of girls living together in a, it was incredible. We cooked. It was just so wholesome and it was um, looking after each other, um, being respectful, obviously learning boundaries, but I loved it. There's obviously a lot of um, things that one needs to learn to be able to adapt to that sort of environment because that's not really what we've, our society isn't based on anything like that right now. Um, but yeah, I would be all for it. So what is your kind of first impression on what would be the benefits of living within a, a society or, or a building like this? I think the first one for me, and maybe in the way I'm picturing a commune or a, a collective, is that you're dedicating the substantive part of your your home to nature. Like the idea is to buy a big block, so you've got a, a an area protected of like wildlife, habitat, species, and then living sustainably within that. So I like the idea of sharing carbon costs and 
offsetting that as much as possible. Um, I also really like the idea, and this might this is, might be a bit of a weird tangent, but uh, I've recently been reading The Island by Elvis Huxley, and he talks about a few different things. He talks about things like the Mutual Adoption Club, which is the idea of having that 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 supportive network around children, having that supportive network around the community. So I like the idea of being able to have a few families in the area and having that that small community where like kids or individuals know they always have somebody else to go to who's not in that immediate circle of them. So that would probably be my like immediate benefits is I like, I like the idea of being able to foster first off sustainability and two a really tight knit people where, which can be interreliant reliant on and, but have that separation, I suppose. I tend to agree with you, Adwin. I just think um, our society and to further our society for good and for the better, we actually need to start being, mindful of each other and helping out each other obviously like you said having those boundaries having that space but being so close and much more closer together I think we have the potential to be able to help each other out in that commune sort of environment I feel like it's quite hard to even even me when I'm by myself and I'm trying to think yeah like I want to do better I'm not going to (laughs) drive I'm not going to drive today I'm going to walk but then I'll you know it's just, it's having that sort of pack mentality, not the pack mentality to sort of help one another out in the sustainable world and living. It would be, I think it would be much more beneficial than continuing to live um, quite isolated from one another. Yeah. So I guess continuing on with that point, do you, I mean, as much as you can foresee this, because obviously we're not living in one of these, but mm-hmm. how do you think it would change your life or it might change the way you have your, the way you lived your life, your, your daily habits? How might it start to influence those, do you think? I feel like this is a sense of being so selfish and the ability to be so selfish would be, it would be almost eradicated completely if you were in to be in a community with such close proximity to the people that you are living with. I just feel like that sense of selfishness would be lost and that would aid the destruction of capitalism. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> win-win for everybody. Um, so, yeah, I'm along the mindset of that, I think. I wonder if you'd have a kickback of selfishness yeah. and you'd have to maybe figure out that compromise. Like, to what extent – because obviously a commune of any – or collective of any sort, as you said, Rob – requires decisions and communication, communication, communication overload. So I'm wondering of how we reconcile our modern lives now, like the way we understand space and privacy Mm. with others and figuring out, well, what extent should we be selfish and is it okay to be selfish and, and allocation of resources as, as well. And that sounds so economical, but I suppose having greater responsibility and accountability directly towards, um, providing for that community or, or doing something like that. So I, I foresee like quite a lot of changes of compromises of the self. And mm. I don't know, I, I don't, I, I think there'd be a few points where you'd, you'd lose some of like that individuality or that, that autonomy maybe. Mm. Um, and I think you'd, you'd probably have to get a lot more uh, compassionate and tolerant maybe, <laughs> you know, when things didn't quite go the right way or, or, that sort of thing so I, I wonder how much because it's very easy for us to postulate about it so I wonder how much of compromise of the self it requires I, I yeah I am was I thought about that same point and whether it would be pushing like borderline pushing um not being able to use your individual thoughts on it like and being pushed into that that group like 
process of not being able to individually make a decision for oneself mm-hmm. if it's like a it's if it's always a constant group commune thing and like you said you losing your individuality into that group mm. scheme which is incredibly important because we all love be yourself um, but yeah it's I think that would be a massive issue and having to sort of step away from the group mm. well I mean like you you kind of both raise interesting points is that these these societies and these collectives actually are a lot of work like when you're in a relationship it's a lot of work and it's kind of a similar thing here like when I've been sitting on meetings of other collectives in Melbourne they have, you know, they have quite an extensive sort of like policy and rule books and processes and how they vote for things. And like, like but it's essentially, it's a little kind of democracy of sorts. A little bureaucracy. So, yeah, it's, there is a bit of bureaucracy as well. Try to make it more of a democracy. Um, <laughs> but there is a lot of, it is a lot of work and it takes a lot of time and energy. And yeah, so it's mm-hmm. kind of, do the benefits that you get from it outweigh the kind of mental tax that comes with that? And I guess that comes down to an individual basis of how willing you are to sort of work on this community and work with these other people. But I guess, you know, and thinking about how maybe we, we spread this idea beyond just the, the radical listeners and community of 3CR, mm-hmm. how do you think you could encourage more people to sort of live in a society like this? Or is that even possible? Um, I definitely think you can, and it's very easy to, because again, as I come back to, and I said this in alternative news, we're probably never going to own our own house. (laughs) So looking at this idea of like the fact that like elderly people are actually currently like, we've seen a rising trend of elderly people moving into houses together and, you know, supporting one another through finance, joint finances. And I think through seeing share houses be quite a long-term thing, you know, millennials are still in share houses and all that sort of stuff going into their thirties. I think we're starting to see, or not, maybe not we're starting to see, but I think we we definitely got the solid idea of like people learning to live with each other basically. Um, So I think if you sell it from the fact that look, 2020 to 2030 is going to be a decade of climate chaos, economic uncertainty and the consequences of neoliberalism burning itself you know, <laughs> into a flaming asteroid. It, it, it's, it's actually quite savvy or practical to say, hey, but we can actually work on maybe joining, you know, joining into these small groups and negotiating what we want to be doing, what our terms of living want to be and working together to achieving that because it's, it's economically savvy. There's a, there's a lot of advantages to it. So I think from a logistical point of view, we could make the argument quite easily. Because there, there is a strong argument about self-determination. So in a, in a housing market where you're very much at the, the whims of a developer or someone developing the land for you, by you taking ownership with a group of other people and sort of directing that land and directing that kind of collective vision, that appeals a lot. And that's part of the success in, in Berlin is that people really buy into that and want that kind of experience of controlling their lives mm. a little bit more again. Yeah, I I also uh, I think there would be a massive issue with self determination with the old sort of belief in the boomer belief with have your own property, make your own like life out of this. Like this is you and like a small sort of family thing. I just feel like that's going to be a massive problem, not so much for our generation, but for that generation to like get behind. Like you said before, it's not just the youth that is doing this. I feel like it predominantly will be the youth before it can be like the entire population. Touching on that, sorry, Jess, just like the amount of, I mean, like 
dominant western ideals of that yeah. idea of like american dream America, yeah american dream <laughs> yeah you know, even australia the middle class hard working <laughs> man you know the, i think those sorts of things would have to be toppled and that would be uh, that would, would be significant to try and do i i genuinely think that would be a massive problem and I, that's just the, probably the one thing that would worry me <laughs> yeah i think we're more likely going to see it either with young adults or retirees i think the mm. most difficult market group would be families like families, families. Mm -hmm. i think that's the hardest area and that's a significant proportion of the population um but i think i guess maybe that's a that's a good time to to get a get off this this tram of thought and and, and have a break but thank you for coming on my my tram of thought this week jess and i Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434-136-501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. On World Refugee Day, artists from official war artists, some of whom are from the National Association for the Visual Arts, prepared a letter in solidarity with refugee Farhad Bandish and all who have been silenced and kept in offshore detention in Australia. Farhad came to Australia in July 2013 to seek asylum. He was exiled to Manus Island until July 2019 when he was transferred to Australia for medical treatment under the Medivac law. Amnesty International Australia reported that on the 23rd of April of this year, Farhad was abruptly moved from the Mantra Hotel in Preston to Mitre um, late at night and without his art materials and other personal belongings. The forced relocation took place just days after Farhad appeared on national television to raise questions about the safety of refugees and asylum seekers in detention. His requests to have his materials returned have been repeatedly denied. Two months have now gone by since Farhad's belongings were taken. Today I'm speaking to Farhad about his journey and plight to have freedom to express himself through his arts while in imprisonment here in Australia. Thanks for joining us today, Farhad. Thank you, Jessica. I think I'd like to start this interview with just you telling us how your love for art started. What sort of art do you create? Uh, actually, I remember when I was a child, I really liked art, like do some painting, drawing, or create something. Uh, when I was on Manus Island, I thought maybe I can create some artwork. And I mm -hmm. started with acrylic and then oil paint. And at the same time, I tried to build some music and write poetry as well. And I create some songs. So I've actually heard that you're about to release a new song. You have released a few songs in the past. One in 2019, I think. Um, I think it was called the Big, the Big Exhale and one called Flee From War. Can you tell us about your new song that you're working on or that you've newly released? 
uh, uh, actually, I released my new song. It's called Friendship, 20th of uh, June, uh, the World Refugee Day. Mm-hmm. I released that song. And I try to show the refugee are humans like others. And we have uh, many things to share. And that's the thing I try and release the song, The Refugee Day. It's an incredibly important message. And it seems that art is a very big part of your identity. Before we go into what's happening at the moment and how the Australian government has taken your materials, why don't we backtrack? Why did you seek asylum in Australia? What was your life, your life like before Manus Island? Uh, I was a Kurdish active activist and I thought I need to leave my land to find peace and safety and promote my music, my culture. And I came to Australia and Australian government exiled me to Manus Island for six years. It's, it's an incredibly long time and it's heartbreaking for me and all Australians who understand and who are on your side. Um, clearly you had very bright hopes for Australia. Um, what, were, what, what did you think, would ha- like what were your expectations when you decided to come to Australia, did you think, did you expect any of this? Did you think it would take this long? No, no, never, never. I thought they welcoming me, but they didn't. But I, I am really happy to have the people, they are welcoming me and they care and share love with me. Mm-hmm. That's mean a lot to me. It's it's disgusting how the government is treating you and we don't want you in this ridiculous imprisonment. Back to art, because it has seems like art has helped you through this time. How has it helped you survive while in offshore detention? You told you said that in Manus Island you were able to work with acrylics and that sort of thing. Do you think that was really important for you to be able to survive it? Yeah, it's always I say the art helped me to know go crazy. And I survived because of art, my paintings, my music, and my family and friends. Mm. I am alive because of these things. If they, the government want to take one of them, they killing me. Yeah, and I go crazy. They took my art supplies for two months now. And, I, and they did it. One time they give it to me, one time they take it away from me. So they have, have they done this before? Have they taken it away from you before? Is this a... F- yeah, yes, yes. And what was the reasoning that time? Did they, why did they take it off you the first time? There, re- there is no reason why I am here. There is no reason. Why I'm in prison for seven years. There is no reason. Absolutely nothing. No, exactly right. Did you... Um, when you were moved from the mantra in Preston to um, to Mata, why, why were you moved at night? Why were you, were you told why we you, you were moved so abruptly from Preston to the other um, Mata? What was the reasoning behind that? There is no reason. The reason is I 
speak speak out i speak about humanity i ask for human rights i went to q and a i had a question to the government mm. and i think they are not happy with what i do what i want and that's i think that's something that's incredibly scary to all of us in australia because with this isn't yeah. a dictatorship government it's not supposed to be it's a democracy and it's a we're all for human rights and this is not what the government is showing and it's it's not okay what they're doing to you art supply art supplies are not illegal um they should not be yeah. deemed unsafe and as you said there's no reason what why they could have done this um what do they actually take from you did they take everything or was it selected things they take my artwork like brushes paints and everything i cannot paint anymore and there is no reason for punishing innocent people there is no reason it's 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 really heartbreaking even me talking to you right now um do you have you have you been able to speak to anyone about gaining your belongings back or gaining new ones has that been talked about at all i ask abf circle managers here mm-hmm. they right now one of the officers came to me and said we cannot give you art supplies i said why they said we have been told and I said why he said I don't know it's, they don't know where the the rules come from it's it's quite it's, clear that they're not giving you any communication or any sort of help with no. understanding what is happening it's in it's a yeah. prison feel you are in prison yeah. right now and it's yeah they can uh, treat me how they want have they, they done this Have they done this to all all of the refugees and all of the people that you are with or is it selective? They do in a different way to others. Okay. They torturing everyone in a different way. Look, I I am incredibly sorry from all of us in Australia who does completely disagrees with this. I am incredibly sorry. How do you hope Australia can change its narrow-minded views of persons seeking asylum you've you've made music to try and get this these messages across and your interior artwork how do you think and how do you hope australia can change with australian people with their help i think we can change this policy mm-hmm. and the policy is really dirty mm-hmm. they are killing innocent people thousands and thousands of innocent people Mm-hmm. and it's not fair someone is looking for safety to be treated like this we are not criminals mm-hmm. we committed no crime but we are just looking for freedom i just like to say thank you again farhad for speaking to us today um we'll be interviewing some other people about this and trying to get the message across thank you again for joining us and we really do hope that something comes out of this very soon yeah thanks jessica